Well, it's great. Um, it's great to be back here. Um, it's great to be back here just after a week's gap and not a full year. Um, it's also a bit of an encouragement to see that, you know, week on week, regardless of the church you go to, people will sit in the same seats or in the same place uh, in your churches. Uh, just good to know it's not just the places I grew up where that's a thing. Um, now, if you could keep your Bible open uh, at the Psalms of Ascent, um, the Psalms of Ascent as a whole that uh, you guys have looked at over the summer, uh, that would be great. They're all quite short, so on mine it's covered all the ones that we have are on that same uh, kind of set of pages. And if you haven't been here uh, over the last, over the summer, or if you're just visiting uh, today, just let me just take us through uh, what, these, what these Psalms are, what they mean, uh, and the ones we've looked at so far. So the people of Israel, uh, they would sing these psalms on their way as they ascended. That's why they're called the Songs of Ascent. Why they, as they climbed up to Israel, to uh, Jerusalem, to celebrate festivals, uh, namely the Passover, to celebrate all that the Lord has done for them. And we, as we go through our lives, as we ascend to the new Jerusalem that's been promised to us, we can also look back on what the Lord has done for us and we can look forward to what he is going to do for us when we are with him forever. So Psalm 121, uh, we were lifting our eyes to our, the maker of heaven and earth and understanding that we need his help on this tough journey in a world that isn't our own. 122 was lifting our eyes to that house, to Zion, towards this house towards which we are journeying, getting ourselves ready for this place and longing for it and the gifts that it offers Psalm 123 was lifting our eyes to God himself uh, to see us through in the face of worldly contempt. And Psalm 124 uh, that we had uh, the chance to look at last week was looking back, looking back on the Lord's faithfulness to his people and allowing that to have us confidently press forward toward our home. Now this psalm is shorter, it's even shorter than the one we had last week. Um, and there is much to take from it, uh, so let me pray before we uh, dig into it. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that it is unchanging, that the truths of it speak to us as they did to the people who first heard them all those years ago. We pray that as we uh, look through it, that it would be your word that speaks to us, that that would be what we remember, that your goodness to us uh, through our lives and your goodness to us that you have promised us uh, in the end, will be what excites us and what has us uh, go out into uh, our situations in this coming week. So help us as we look through it, uh, get rid of any distractions that may be there, uh, and that we would uh, focus on your word for this next wee while. In your name, amen. Now I wonder, uh, what makes you feel secure or safe in life? It might not be one particular uh, thing, it might be something kind of day-to-day -day or something more generally. Uh, I was back home uh, in Lewis last week and I asked my dad where his car keys were, to which he replies, they're in the car. <laughs> That's just a facet of living in Lewis. You feel secure in that way that no one's going to nick your car. You can dream of doing that here. More broadly, it might be something like routine. You might be looking forward to the holidays kind of coming to a close in some small way, maybe, for that very reason. It might be the paycheck at the end of the month or the school friend or family member that you can speak to, have a laugh with, or chat to more seriously when times are tough. 
It might be the chance to meet on Sundays here week on week. Now, whatever it is, we find security in something. There is something or there are many things in our lives that make us feel safe, steady and ready to go again. But if and when these things fail us, we're let down by them. I want to take you back, and apologies for this, to March 2020, when everything shut down, when all these things changed so quickly. Everything on which we presumed and in which we were given peace by their existence all went out the window. The seemingly untouchable air travel industry, the tourism sector in Edinburgh, we know we're feeling that this month with the first fringe in three years, something like that. That was untouchable three years ago. But it all came crashing down. Even the ability to visit a family member in our own city or in another part of the country were all subject to judgment calls and many other factors that we had to take into consideration. But this psalm that we're going to look at highlights the rock-solid security afforded to those who trust in the Lord. In Yahweh, we spoke about them last week, it's every, whenever you read it here, It's L-O-R-D, capitals, that's Yahweh. That's all his character, all his being, all the things that he is, the I am who I am, rolled into that one word. So we see the security afforded to those who trust him. What's going to happen to those who oppose him? And how we should respond as his people, knowing these things are going to happen. And the question arises right at the start of the psalm. Are we trusting in him? Not in Sam or Cheeks or Colin or anyone else who stands up here or your small group leaders. Are we trusting in him? The one who has said he will do these things. And we're going to look at that in a bit more detail today. So firstly, trusting in the Lord means lasting security and protection in an uncertain world. That's verses 1 and 2. So let me read verses 1 and 2 again. It's up on the screen and it'll be in your In your Bibles as well. Those who trust in the Lord are like the Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now we see two uh, mountain kind of images in verses uh, one and two here. They describe two different things. Firstly, they describe those who trust in the Lord. Mount Zion, where Jerusalem sits. It's our ultimate goal on this pilgrimage through this world. And being there, being like Mount Zion, is to be immovable. Mountains, whenever we see them, we're fortunate enough in Edinburgh to be able to see many, either in the city with Arthur's Seat or the Pentlands, if you look further south. It's a picture of stability. Thousands of years of history of kings, of rulers, of empires have come and gone. But the mountains are pretty much the same, bar probably, you know, more grass or more kind of deliberate flower arrangements or something like that. They're very much the same as they have been thousands of years ago. And Mount Zion is the end goal for these people on their pilgrimage. As they sang those songs, as the people of Israel sang this, they would have been seeing Mount Zion in front of them. And the stability that that offers, the climb up the hill, to be like Mount Zion is to be utterly secure and utterly immovable. And the second thing uh, we see 
uh, here, and Tim, you can put up the uh, images uh, there, is the protection that the Lord offers his people. Now, if we get a quick uh, geography lesson in there, there was a screen behind me, so I actually had printed it out. Spot the teacher. I printed some of these out so you could see them, but I think hopefully you should be able to see that uh, behind me. Here you can see the landscape uh, of Israel from two uh, different directions. So on uh, the top one there, we see it from the south, uh, and at the one on the bottom, we see it from the east. While Jerusalem itself is on a hill, and that was a very militarily safe place to be, very defensible, very easy uh, to keep uh, attackers at bay. Jerusalem itself is actually surrounded by even higher hills all around it. It's basically a natural kind of wall all around Jerusalem, protecting it from people who might come in. As good as it is to be on a hill, to be surrounded by higher hills is even more secure. Enemy soldiers would have to navigate all the valleys around it. They'd have to come down from these higher points. Or if you're coming up from Jericho, you see it on the top there, you're going to have to climb about three to three and a half thousand feet just to make it there to attack Jerusalem. But what do we see said of uh, these images? How secure are we? How guaranteed is this promise? At the end of both uh, verses one and two in our psalm, it tells us this is an eternal security. The end of verse 1. It says, Mount Zion cannot be moved but endures forever or abides forever, depending on what your uh, translation says. And verse 2, the Lord's protection. So the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now why will the Mount Zion that we're climbing towards, why will God's people abide forever? Because we are surrounded by the Lord and protected by him. So these truths of verse 1 and verse 2 work in tandem to give the Christian absolute, certain, unshakable security. This is wonderful. It's a wonderful reminder of what it means to trust in the Lord, to lean on him deliberately on this journey through the world. And if the psalm finished there, that'd be great, wouldn't it? be a wonderful encouragement two verses we're secure the lord surrounds us let's go get lunch but that doesn't match up with our i guess our lived experience or how we feel living in this world that is as sam prayed there is so much going on in the world that might make us shake or might make us not think that that is the case and thankfully god's word is so much more honest and realistic about the way the world is than to ignore it So we're going to look at that uh, just now. So we just said trusting in the Lord means lasting security and protection in the world. That's verses 1 and 2. And he proves his security. He proves his trustworthiness by dealing with unrighteous rule in the world. That's verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. So this section is where I particularly found kind of other translations uh, helpful. So I'll be referring to a couple of them in understanding this a bit more fully. What is the scepter of wickedness? Or in the NIV it said the scepter of the wicked. Now a scepter, any kind of history buffs here will know it was kind of a staff or like a long baton uh, that was held 
in the hand of a ruling monarch or an emperor. And it was kind of an insignia, a sign of royalty, of imperial rule. And it gave them, kind of figuratively speaking, authority or power or sovereignty. And what's been spoken of here is the power and authority being in the hands of those who are not of or who are not for the people of God. Uh, if you look at First and Second Chronicles or First and Second Kings, that maps out Israel's royal history. And there are plenty of examples there of kings who did well in the sight of the Lord, who did good in the sight of the Lord, and those who did evil in the sight of the Lord while ruling over his promised land for his people. And when I first read this, I read this as he won't let the scepter be there at all. But again, upon further reading, the wording is much clearer than that. It will not rest on it. Or in the NIV, it will not remain on the land. The psalmist here is, again, so realistic. He's not saying that there won't be times where that is the case. Where evil seems to reign and rule. And when the king does evil in the sight of the Lord, we said Chronicles and Kings speak of that as well. You might have been met with a laugh or an outright anger by someone if you said this to a person living under some of these evil kings. Ahaz ruled for 16 years. Manasseh ruled for 55 years. Tell that to someone who is in that kingdom, under that rule. Some of whom will have died under that rule. Now, the psalmist is not ignoring this situation, but he's placing it in the context of history. What we say to these people who lived under those scepters of wickedness is that it will not reign forever. The security we spoke of is in life and in death. And I hope you can see the contrast of the first kind of two sections we've looked at. We see the forever and the reigning forevermore of verses 1 and 2, of the security we have, of the protection we have as God's people, versus the scepter of wickedness. It's finite. It will end. The evil kings of Israel we've spoken of, we mentioned it last week, of the persecuted church in name as many countries as you can hope to name on open doors and websites like that, And here in Scotland, in the general kind of Western Hemisphere just now, of the society that does not want to hear it. Now how that scepter manifests itself uh, today, just going to go into a bit more detail on what I just mentioned. We live in a country, and in a hemisphere, I guess, where the Christian ethic of marriage, what truly makes someone's identity, and a whole host of other issues are seen as intellectually lazy, Weird, stupid, or bigoted. And the, this further, um, imbe- the further this embeds itself in our society, the more prevalent that thought process becomes, the higher the pressure may be to compromise. In the office, in the lecture hall, in the classroom, in the playground, wherever it might be. Does the Bible really say this? You might be asked of echoing Genesis 3. Did God really say this? And of course there's wisdom uh, and uh, nuance into how you approach a question like this. But we might be tempted to twist it. 
or to dampen the impact of what the Bible says just to move the conversation on or to kind of chill the atmosphere in the room out a bit when it's gotten incredibly awkward when you get asked a question like that. This temptation and other kind of more or less nuanced arguments that uh, you will be involved in depending on your situation. But the question comes, how will we react? And this is where the wonderful truth of the psalm comes into play. As we're on the journey home, where it feels like there's no way out and the suffering we face for sticking with Jesus is too much. We can remember that the rule of these powers and authorities will not rest and will not remain on you. Again, just to clarify, it does not say it will not exist. The Christian life is tough and the Bible is honest and open about that. It is not a sign that you are doing anything wrong as life is going tough or poorly. It's a sign of a fallen world that we all live in. I've been tempted to think that at times myself. The scepter is there like it has been in the past, but it will not remain on the land that the righteous have allotted to them. It will be taken away in the end. And there's a real grace in why this is done, just moving down uh, to verse, to kind of further on in verse 3. So I'll just read it again. For the scepter of the wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. I, I originally read lest as kind of unless. That was the kind of understanding I had of it, which is just n- is not the case. It is not a, if they do it, then the scepter is going to stay. It's taken away so that they might not turn away. So that the righteous will not stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now this turning away, read the language there, it's stretching out their hands. The turning away, the compromise, is a choice that is made. But we are always given a way out. We will not always do this perfectly. Just as our trust in him is not perfect, the effects of sin will hamper in some way or another, the best intention, most faithful Christian you have ever met, until one day it is taken away. Second Peter uh, was written uh, to uh, a bunch of uh, Christians who were living in a world like this, whose big question of those around them was, Jesus isn't coming back, so let's carry on. Let's keep going the way it has gone, because Jesus isn't coming back. This just isn't true. And they were wondering, why do we keep going? And in chapter 3, Peter wrote this. So this is 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm just going to read verses 8 to 10. Um, If you know that down, if you want, that'd be great. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. A couple of things there. Um, 
past, when we are suffering the way that we are, and we all are in different ways, we may want it to come. We may ask, why hasn't he come back yet? And partly it's out of his grace towards those who haven't repented yet. To our friends, our family who haven't come to him yet. So that we might continue to ask that he would bring them to repentance. And also with this world, with this scepter of evil. That last bit in verse 10 that I mentioned. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The rain will not continue. So we can thank the Lord that he hasn't come back yet because we know people who we want to be with him as well. But we can also long for his return in equal measure knowing that the scepter of evil will be taken away. Have that promise that the scepter will be removed fuel your endurance while it is here now. The Lord will provide a way out. The rule of wickedness will not last forever. Keep going. Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13 uh, that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Keep going. Turn away from the tempting, seeming ease of compromise. And keep going. But how do we do this? How do we keep going? Which aspect of trusting the Lord can we call upon here? And that brings us uh, on to point three. The quote I'll mention uh, in a second. That'll be uh, a bit later on. But we can actively ask Yahweh to fulfill his promises. This is verses four and five. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Now we can appeal to God to do things that he has said he will do. That is what this section, this prayer, is asking. Do what you have said you will do. Now at the end of um, a school week uh, with a few of my maths classes... Uh, we play some kind of math-related games. It's usually bingo or a treasure hunt or something like that. And there's prizes on offer. And the engagement was great, so I kept it be- becoming a, a tradition once every week or once every couple of weeks. Now, the problem for me comes when either the timetable hasn't allowed for it because they say, oh, it's Friday. We're going we're gonna to do that. So I was like, no, we can't do it this week. Oh, okay. Or I haven't bought the prizes and I have to give them my IOUs and say, oh, no, I'll, I'll give it to you on Monday. And kids have pestered me for weeks afterwards saying I owe them prizes that I'm not even sure they've won by that point. (laughs) And be it for prizes or actually playing the games themselves, they appeal to the fact that I said it would happen. And they hold on to that, as annoying as it is for me uh, to experience. Now conversely, with God, we can do this every time we pray to him. God, you have said you will do good to those who are good. The Deuteronomy mentions that in the Old Covenant. Do it now. We ask that you do it for us. And it's a great privilege to be able to embed these truths into our hearts. Now, the Old Covenant was clear on this kind of language. Deuteronomy, as I mentioned, where it mentions blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. 
Now, this still comes by faith. Obedience can only come by faith. And it's always been that way, um, just to kind of clarify. And James is really helpful, the book of James in the New Testament, of how that relationship works. But the glory of the gospel, and the reason we're sitting here this morning, is that the Lord did good to us when we were not good. Not deserving of anything. While we were sinners, yet Christ died for the ungodly. He took the punishment that we deserved and poured it it out on his son. As though we were the ones that in verse 5 had turned aside to crooked ways. As though he was the one who did that. He's done good to those who aren't good. And then we can rightly see ourselves as good in God's eyes. But if you are a Christian today, your heart has been changed to desire these things. To be seen as upright and by an almighty God. Even though as life goes on, as we sin, as we still know our fallen nature in some ways, that it's difficult. We've let the Lord down. But we can pray that he will do the ultimate good to us, which is taking us home. He will do this eventually, when his work for us has been done. And in the meantime, we can become more and more aware of his character, his love for his people, his justice, his power, his grace. And Psalm 23 uh, speaks uh, of this, was why this happens. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lord knows that the greatest good he can do for us now, while we still sit here under the scepter of wickedness, is to see his character, his name, his reputation, for more and more of who he is. My parents uh, went on honeymoon uh, to Israel. And on the climb up to Jerusalem itself, they said when you're actually on the road up, you can't really see the hills that surround you. But when you look out, when you reach it and look out, then you see them. Then you see the hills that surround you. And to trust in the Lord is to look away from yourself for security and to him. And in that looking out, you can see his protection, the ways in which he has protected you, and can trust that he will protect you. (coughs) This psalm is a reminder to look to God, the God who surrounds us and has dealt with the scepter of wickedness for all of time. In his son, the Lord Jesus. To see the security we have as his people and to pray his promises back to him and into our hearts. What is the result of that? A confident prayer that peace will be upon Israel. That's how the psalm finishes. Based on his historic and present goodness towards his people and his promises to do good by them in the future. I didn't realise, and I well, I think I had spoken to Sam about this, but I'd forgotten that you guys were moving on to Romans um, from next week, which is great. And I quite often have a kind of, when I'm thinking back on my sin, and we all do, I can be tempted to have a kind of Romans 7 kind of attitude towards it. The way Romans 7 finishes, I'll just read it. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I can be tempted, and I think we maybe can as well, to finish at 724. Wretched man that I am. But, 725, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we rest there and think, because of what's going on this week, what's been going on, that is legitimate. The Bible speaks into those difficulties. But if we forget the truth of what's going on in the Word, what is actually true of you as a Christian, then we lose out in so much joy. If you, Tim, if you put up the last uh, quote there, Alistair Begg uh, was speaking. Uh, he was at a church, and the first thing that was mentioned uh, when the guy came up on the stage was, how do you feel? And he said, if you ask me, based on the last 10 minutes, based on how I woke up this morning, how I felt, you doubt whether or not I was a Christian at all. I spilt my coffee, I got annoyed because someone took my parking space, someone sat in the seat I normally sit in. I feel rotten because of the things I've done this week. But he said, ask me what I know. And that's why he says, you have to get yourself under the control of the Scriptures. That's why it's what we know, the verities or the truths of the scriptures which fuel our hearts and our emotions, which lead us on. Hence, and I've paraphrased it because this is the song we're going to sing uh, later. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance, security, control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. That is as solid a truth as any to sing into our hearts. Our situation was helpless and yet Christ shed his own blood for you if you are a Christian today. You are now looking away from yourself. You are looking out and up to Christ. And that is what we have something that fuels, that, sorry, and it, and it is in this that we have something that fuels our praise and our endurance. Let me pray uh, as we think about that. Father, thank you that the assurance that we have the security that we have is based on your son is based on the unchanging truth that you died for the ungodly and there is no power that can remove that truth from us allow this truth to fuel us as we are tempted to compromise as we are brought about with different situations, different people whom we know and love who ask these questions of us. Allow us to stick firm to the truth of your word because of what it says to us, because of how secure it is and because of how secure we are because of it. Pray these things in your name. Amen.